Well, God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today, and thanks so much for coming. We realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there, so we bring that service to you wherever you are, anywhere in Israel, anywhere in the world. And we hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and His promises for your life. Would you open in your Bibles to the book of Genesis? That's where we're going to be today again. Boy, we're getting close to the end of it here. One more week and we'll be done with it. The book of Genesis chapter 49. And we'll also put these verses up here for you in the video just to make it easier for you to follow along. And I'd like to talk to you today about the second part of last week's message, Finishing Well. We're now in part two of the two-part series, Finishing Well. And today we're going to start at Genesis chapter 49, verse 13, and go on to the end of the chapter from there. And then next week we'll do chapter 50, and we'll be finished with the book of Genesis. It's going to turn out really good, and we're continuing on our journey through God's Word. You know, as we said last week, we're now one chapter away from the end of HaSefer Bereshit. Ha, the Sefer, book, Bereshit, beginnings. The book of beginnings, that's how we say it, Bevrit, or in Hebrew. It's the first book of the Torah, what we call in English the five books of Moses. And in chapter 49 is the story of where the biblical patriarch Jacob, Yaakov is how we say his name in Hebrew. Jacob is blessing his sons as the 147-year-old man is now in his last days in earth. I, I can't imagine being that old. I can't imagine being as old as I am for that matter. But as we said last week in the first part of this two-part series, Yaakov's thoughts are not about himself even in his last days. They're not on himself. No, his eyes are on the Lord, and his heart is on blessing his sons, sometimes by encouragements and other times by rebukes, but either way, that will help them keep on the right track as they now take up the mantle and they continue serving the Lord in their own lives. Now, Jacob has run a long race. God's been faithful to him all these years, and now the finish line is up there in sight. And Jacob focuses all of his remaining energy on finishing that race, on crossing that finish line. Last week in the first part of our Finishing Well series, we went from verse 1 through verse 12. And today we're going to start from verse 13, as I said, go all the way to the end of the chapter at verse 33. It's a shorter message today, of course, yeah, yeah, those of you who know me know that whenever I say that, better look out, it's probably going to be a longer message, but I don't think so. I think it's going to be a shorter message today. So let's just dive right in, continue our journey through the book of beginnings, HaSefer Bereshit, or as you would say in English, the book of Genesis. Verse 13 in chapter 49 of Hebrews simply says, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Now, let's pause right there. One verse in, and we're already stopping. You say, Pastor Stephen, I thought you said this was going to be a short message. I said it should be a short message. and Maybe you can help me out with that. But uh, 
listen quickly and let's see if it goes any faster. So what we're going to do today, though, is we're going to go verse by verse through the remainder of this chapter and stop briefly after each section of verses to talk about what's really being said there. It's important that we do that in these blessings because they're to all of his 12 sons, and we've already covered about half of them. So we're going to cover the other half. It's important to talk about what the blessing for each son is talking about. So we'll go verse by verse in doing that. Now remember that when the patriarch blesses his sons, it's not just wishful thinking. It's not just blessing them and saying, oh, I hope the best for you. I wish the best happens. No, back then, at that time in the Bible, when Abraham, when Isaac, when Jacob blessed their sons, it was a real blessing that was actually biblical prophecy. It was noted that before in those days and proven by the history that followed that whatever that patriarch said, it came to pass. Jacob here is not speaking of his own thoughts from his own heart, but the Holy Spirit of God is giving him the exact words to speak. Words that speak of future events. And those future events will surely come to pass exactly as he says they will. And that's exactly what happened to Zebulun, as predicted in this very first verse today that we just read. Many years later, the descendants of Jacob's son, Zebulun, the tribe, if you will, of Zebulun, would be brought by Yehoshua, Joshua. Yehoshua is how we say it, Bevrit in Hebrew. He would be brought by Joshua into the promised land. And their allocation of land in what is now Israel would be a section of land between Haifa, the modern-day port city in the north of Israel, and the Sea of Galilee toward the east, and all of this in the center of Israel, only on the north part, but centered east and west-wise in the land of Israel. In fact, on the west of Zebulun's, Zebulun's allocated land, they would be able to see the Mediterranean Sea. And a short distance away from that land, would be the water where the ships could dock and deliver and load up goods to carry to and from all of the parts of the known world at that time. So just as Yaakov says to Zebulun in this chapter, it comes to pass many years down the road exactly as it said it was. In. And of course, we have the benefit now of looking after history has already been written and we can look back and see. But Yaakov and his sons were looking ahead to the future. They didn't have history to look back on. The only history they had was history of how God had dealt with their father, Jacob, with his father, Isaac, and with his father, Abraham. And they saw that God was faithful. And they saw that according to their father and their father's father, that all the things that had been said during these patriarch blessings had come to pass, so they paid attention. They knew that what was going to be said by their father, all the other opinions they might have had about him and his judgment and other things, notwithstanding, they knew that whatever was going to be said about Jacob on this day would be the things that actually would come about in their future. So they think and they just put everything else aside. They're not texting on their phones and 
anyway. And stuff like that, they're not distracted. That's what I'm trying to say. And they're listening to their father. Kids, pay attention to your fathers. The things that he's speaking today are going to come to pass exactly as he said it would. Well, the tribe of Zebulun eventually became famous for its connections then to the rest of the world through its shipping ports and through its businesses. Now let's continue and see what Jacob said to Issachar. Issachar, his son, he said, Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that it was good and that land that he was in was pleasant. And he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and he became a band of slaves. Now Jacob's words to his son Issachar is kind of like a mixed blessing it seems to me. On one hand, Jacob tells Issachar that his descendants are going to be strong. What he's saying is they'll be a large tribe compared to the other tribes of Israel and that they'll dwell in a pleasant land, a pleasant place to be. But then Jacob also says that somehow they're going to become a band of slaves. Now from the text, it seems that the descendants of Issachar would have a great place to live in They'd be large in numbers compared to the other tribes, as we said. But it seems that they're maybe a little bit lazy. It seems that they would not really have any goals in life of their own other than just to relax and be in comfort. And that's the way a lot of people that you probably know today are. They're not trying to do anything noble. They're just living day to day. The problem was, as history shows, the other nations saw Issachar, saw that they were laid back, kicked back, as we would say, and they weren't really thinking about their own uh, security or anything. They were just kind of like oblivious to life, it seemed like. And so these other nations went in and they enslaved Issachar's descendants and they made them into servants. Issachar seemed to be okay with that. It seems they didn't really have any noble goals in life outside of living a simple day-to-day -day existence. Didn't care if he was serving or what. Now, that's kind of sad. You know, it seems like they didn't have any incentive to do anything. Now, I'm not talking about climbing up a corporate ladder. I'm not talking about getting ahead, being greedy. He who dies with the most toys wins. I'm not talking about money or anything like that. But there are things that you can do in life in serving the Lord that bring honor and glory to Him and that bring fulfillment of your calling that He's given you for life into your own heart. Now let's see what Jacob says about his son, Don. And you say, well, Stephen, that's not Don, that's Dan. Well, it turns out in Hebrew, Be'evrit, how we say D-A-N is Don. It's kind of like the A in Father. It's got that ah sound instead of the A sound. It's an ah sound, so D-A-N becomes Don. And he says in verse 16, as Jacob is talking to his son Don, Don, you shall judge your people as one of the tribes of Israel. Don shall be a serpent in the way. Now, we really don't know how to take that yet, but we're going to find out in a little bit. So he says, Don shall be a serpent in the way. In verse 17, it says that a viper or a type of poisonous snake by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backwards. In other words, it's going to make a mess of anyone passing by. 
Don is going to be a serpent in the way, biting the horse's heels. The horse is going to rear up, dump the rider off his back. No one's going to be happy with that serpent. Let's talk about those verses now through verse 17. Well, first of all, notice that Don shall judge his people. That's what Jacob said. It makes sense. If you know the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for judge is D-A-N, Don. The book of Daniel, Daniel in the Tanakh, uses this term in the name of the prophet Daniel. You say, well, Don is a different name than Daniel. Well, yes, but they both use parts of the same thing for their names. Don is just judge. Daniel, Daniel, translates to God, my judge, or God is my judge. Don is a judge. It, adding the letter I onto the end of Don, like Doni, means my judge. That just makes it possessive. And Don, which means judge, becomes Doni, which means my judge, when you add that E sound or that short I onto the end. Then there is no word for is in Hebrew. Do you know that? There's no word for is in Hebrew. Where it should be, you'll notice it quite easily in the sentence structure as you learn to read Hebrew and learn what's being said, and you won't miss it at all because you'll insert it for yourself. And in fact, many languages, there's no word for is. There's no word for is in Hebrew. It's simply implied that it's there. And the word El on the end of Daniel, well, that's just a shortened way of saying Elohim or God. So when we say Daniel, we're saying my judge is God. That's Daniel's name. That's how you would say Daniel right in English. Uh, you would say Daniel, Daniel, Dani, my judge, El, no is, my judge is God. And now in this chapter, in these verses, it says that Don will judge his people. But then you look at where it says that Don will be a serpent by the way. You know, we see later in the Bible as a, as a book of history as well as the Word of God. It's a book of accurate history because God's Word is truth. Everything it says is true. And it's the most true account of history that we've ever known. It's more manuscripts exist for this than any other book. Its records have been proven over and over again. People try to dig up archaeological sites. They say, well, that person didn't exist that the Bible talks about. And over and over again, a few years later, they find some other archaeological artifact that says, oh, look, it's talking about that person. And then goes, well, I guess he did exist after all. Yeah, turns out the Bible is the truth. God's Word is true. In fact, the Bible says, let every man be a liar, but let God be true. It'll always work out to where God is true. Doesn't matter how many people stand against Him. Doesn't matter what they say. It'll always work out that God's Word is true. You can trust the Word of God. It says, Don will be a serpent along the way, or by the way. And we see that later in Judges chapter 18, verse 30, you don't have to turn there, but you can read the story sometime if you'd like. But that Don would bring trouble to Israel because Don and his tribe, these descendants of Don, introduced idolatry into Israel. Introduced idols into Israel. 
We also see in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 26 through 30, that Jeroboam set up one of his idolatrous golden calves in the area allocated to the tribe of Don. And later in Amos, Amos 8, verse 14, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, tells us that Don became a center for idol worship in Israel. You see, you've got to take great care to maintain your relationship with God. Otherwise, a little compromise here, a little indulgence in sin there, and before long you become someone that you never really intended to be. And that's why you need to pray daily and seek God and His Word daily. As the Bible says, commit your way to the Lord and He'll direct your path. You're not strong enough, you're not wise enough on your own to keep yourself from sin. You need to trust in the Lord to keep you safe from the enemy of your soul. As the scriptures say, seek the Lord while he may be found. You call on him while he's near. Give your life to him because only he can keep you safe from the deceptions and the tragedies that sin can bring. Now let's look at the next verse. The next verse, it just stands alone by itself. Verse 18, it says, Jacob just all of a sudden interrupts the blessing of his sons and makes a personal thought here. And he says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Now, what's going on here? Look at this little verse for a moment. Doesn't, doesn't it seem like a strange place to say that? What does this mean? You thought Jacob was talking about his son, Don. And now all of a sudden he's talking about salvation. What's going on? Let's look at that little verse a little closer because in it is a very, very important message. Here's what you need to see. As we said, Don means judge. And Jacob, like everybody else, knows he's had his share of failures in life. He's had his share of sin. He's not living up to the righteous and holy standards that God has required in His law. He knows that. He doesn't have the law yet, but He knows in His heart God's put it there. And He knows He's failed over and over and over again. Story of all of us, isn't it? We try, we try, we try. We're not pure in heart. We got sins. Even though our hands might do the sins, even though our feet might not walk to do those sins, that heart, those thoughts, there's sin all throughout it. And it takes God to forgive that sin to where when He looks at us, He sees that we're sinless because of the blood of His Messiah. His atoning death paid the price for all of our sins. Not just sins that we did when we were young. Not just sins that we did yesterday not just sins that we did an hour ago or a minute ago. God's Son paid the price for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And if you think about it, of future sins, how could God pay the price for future sins? Well, think about it on the cross. He paid the price for all of our sins before you were even born, right? So they were all in the future at that point in time. Now, Jacob, like everybody else, knows about the failures he's got in his life. John, uh, Jacob, is now thinking about the name of his son, Don. As he's blessed his son, Don, he's just said those things. And then he goes, Don, judge. And, and Jacob is a, a day away from 
leaving this earth now. He's 147 years old. He doesn't know which breath is going to be his last one. But he knows that one day very soon he's going to stand before the real judge. He'll stand before God Almighty and he'll have to answer for the sins he's committed in his life. Jacob remembers the time when he wouldn't even give his own brother something to eat when he was almost starving. And he wouldn't give his brother something to eat unless he charged him something for it. Jacob remembers the time that he lied to his elderly father. The time he took advantage of his father's blindness by telling him that he was his son Esau instead of really who he was Jacob. And he did steal Esau's blessing. And those were just a couple of the sins that Jacob committed as a younger man. And just like any of us, Jacob also had plenty of other sins every day of his life, like we said. Thoughts, thoughts of pride, thoughts of envy, lust for this, envy for that, putting other things before God in life, coveting what somebody else has, greed to always want more and more and more, selfish ambition. The Bible says that all of those are works of the flesh. They're not fruits of the Spirit. You might say that God's blessed you with all of this, but if you're being greedy, if you got those things by selfish ambition, lust, envy, and jealousy, and, and stealing, God didn't bless you with that. You took those things, and one day you'll pay for that sin. It's not a sin to be wealthy. God can bless you, and you can be wealthy. Don't think that those people that are wealthy are sinners above other people. They have the same problems in their hearts and in their minds, the same problem in their thoughts as you and I do. It's just, it's just a different thing. You're greedy about other things. You're selfishly ambitious in other areas. They're selfishly ambitious in another area other than you. But sin is sin. That's what we're saying. And before God's eyes, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. We all need forgiveness. Now as an old man facing death, Jacob acknowledges. In the middle of blessing his sons, he acknowledges with this one little short verse in verse 18. He said, out loud, he said what he's been thinking inside for a while now. He acknowledges that he needs a Savior. Someone who'll provide that atoning sacrifice that will take those sins away. Because Jacob, like all of us, knows deep down inside that God is not going to allow anyone with sin into his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is a holy place. It's the place of God Most High. It's the place of his throne. And he's already committed to judging sin and said the soul that sins, it must die. So anyone that comes into his presence in his kingdom and has sin, he'll destroy the sin and that will destroy the person. But that person was made in his image. He loves that person, but sin has corrupted that person. So God made a way for that sin in that person's life to be forgiven by the sinless Lamb of God, Jesus the Messiah. And through his atoning death, and only through that, our sins can be cleansed to where God can look at us, even though we've had all these problems even though we're not perfect, even yet we're not, God will look at us and say all of his sins, all of her sins have been paid. All of their sins have been cleaned away. It says in the Tanakh that he will take our sins and remove them as far from his, his him as east is from west. 
it says, I love this, it says that he will forget to remember them anymore. God could remember everything if he wants, but he chooses to forget our sins once his son's blood has covered our sins. And now he welcomes us back in his kingdom so that we can live forever in the kingdom of heaven, the most amazing, most wonderful, most beautiful, unimaginable beauty in that place. And he welcomes you there because he made you in his image to be a child of God. He takes you by the hand. He walks you through the wonders of his creation and shows you all these amazing things. Whereas before, without your sins forgiven, you couldn't even enter into the kingdom of heaven. And even if you somehow could, he would have had to take your life because he wanted to destroy the sin in your life because nothing unholy, nothing unrighteous can exist in his kingdom. Everything is perfect. Not because of our efforts, but because of his presence. Because he's the one that makes it perfect. That's why Jesus said in the last verse of Matthew 5 in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, He said, therefore, you are to be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. We can't be perfect except through His blood, and His blood forgives all of our sins, takes it all away, makes us clean, makes us white as snow. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. You will be forgiven for everything you've ever done, everything you will do when God sees it. He's not measuring you up based on what you've done. Your sins are under the blood of the blemish-free Lamb of God. And when God now looks at you, He says, your sins have been paid for. Your sins have been atoned for. Your sins have been taken away. What I see is a pure heart. It's all been claimed. It's as white as snow where it used to be red like scarlet. All your sins have been taken away. And Jacob is now listening to himself talk about Don and how Don will judge his people. And all of a sudden he realizes, Don, Don is judge. God is a judge. I'm going to meet God any day now. And he's going to judge me for all my sins. And then he says, I have waited for your salvation, Lord. That's what he says in verse 18. I've waited for your salvation, Lord. Okay, I get it, Pastor Stephen. But why are you staying on this very, for so much time? I'll tell you why. I want you to know what these words say in Hebrew. There's something that you're going to be amazed at seeing in this tiny little verse in verse 18. In Hebrew, that verse says... Yeshuartcha kivuti Hashem. Now, when a Jewish person says Hashem, you may hear that a lot if you ever go to Israel. They're literally saying the name. Ha is the. Shem is name. Ha Shem, the name. And they're using that for a reason here. The word in the Hebrew in this verse does not literally mean the name. It's the Hebrew letters Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. They're all consonants. Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. And here's the thing those four letters spell out the special name of God. Some people interpret it to call it Yahweh. Other people say it's Yehovah or Jehovah. Others see it and they just say it's Adonai. 
And the reason why they can't figure out what to say is because they don't know how to pronounce it. The little markings over and under each letter in the Hebrew Bible, we call those in Hebrew, those are called nikodot. Little dots, a few dashes, maybe a vertical dash, a horizontal one, a dot here, two or three dots together, two or three, and, and even you know other dots and everything, and some in the middle, some over at the top of the letter. Those are called nikodot. They're markings that tell us in Hebrew how to pronounce each of those letters that they're around, you see. Whether a letter is going to have that vowel sound of A, E, I, O, or U, okay? Those nikodot are like the vowels in English, and they add the proper sounds to the English letters that are consonants, right? That's what vowels in English do. Well, in Hebrew, those vowels are called nikodot, those little dots and markings. Well, it turns out that in Scripture, the nikodot that would tell us how to correctly pronounce the name of God, spelled with those four letters, yud, hey, vav, hey, those nikodot, only those nikodot, were lost through the centuries. So both Christian and Jewish scholars alike agree that nobody really knows how to correctly pronounce that four-letter name of God. Now, in your English translations of the Bible, any time the English translators saw that those four Hebrew letters were there spelling out the name of God, they determined that they would simply replace it with capitalized letters spelling L-O-R-D, or Lord. And they did this out of reverence because they didn't want to mispronounce the four letters in Hebrew. Just like the Jewish sages and scholars didn't want to mispronounce it. Since the nikodot or the vowel pointings were lost through the centuries, no one knows how to mispronounce it. And they did not want to disrespect the name of God because it is holy. And so rather than pronounce it wrong, they substituted a name out of respect. In English, they substituted LORD with all capital letters, L-O-R-D, all caps. The Jewish people likewise replaced those letters with the Hebrew word Hashem, which in Hebrew just means the name. And like the English-speaking Christians, they do this out of reverence for the name that those letters spell. So you see, no one wants to risk pronouncing the name incorrectly, so they simply don't try to pronounce it at all. Instead, they substitute another term, but it's got to be a term that shows respect and reverence whenever they see those four letters in Hebrew, Yud, He, Vav, He, in the scriptures. Now here's the amazing thing about this verse. Oh, we, we're just getting started on this one. Here's the amazing thing. As we said earlier in Hebrew, the verse says, Yeshuartcha kevuti Hashem. Yeshuartcha kevuti Hashem. The first word in the Hebrew is Yeshuartcha which means your salvation. But notice that the Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua. Perhaps you knew that. Adding the T and that K-H-A sound on the end of Yeshua, on the end, means your salvation. Yeshua is the word for salvation in Hebrew. Adding that T and the K-H-A on the end means your salvation, speaking of God. And so now maybe you see where I'm going with this a little bit. Yeshua is the Hebrew word for salvation, but wait a minute. 
It's also the Hebrew name for Jesus. Got it? It's the word for salvation. It's also the Hebrew name for Jesus. Remember when the angel came and he told Mary and Joseph and everything, and you're going to have a son, his name's going to be Jesus, because he shall save their people from their sins. I never understood that before. Well, you're, you're naming him Jesus, and then you're saying, we're going to name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. I never understood that until I understood that the Hebrew name for Jesus is Yeshua, which means in Hebrew, salvation. So he's saying his, his name is going to be salvation because he's going to save his people from their sins. His name is going to be Yeshua, salvation, because he's going to save his people from their sins. So that first word is Yeshua. So basically what Jacob is saying here, you could have just as easily, you could have just as accurately said that Jacob is saying, I have waited for your Yeshua, Lord. Hmm. In fact, this is the first place in all of the Bible, right here in this first book of the Torah, in chapter 49 in the book of Genesis, this is the first place in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, that uses the name Yeshua. It's right there. It's just put that other form around it that says your name, your salvation, there it is right in the first book of the Torah, the name of God's Messiah, Yeshua. Amazing. Now Jacob, out of nowhere, brings this thought out while he's thinking of all of his sins, while he's thinking of the real judge who's, he's about to meet and how his sins might be judged and how he believes now on God's atonement through his salvation, his Messiah, Yeshua. Amazing how he cannot stand in the presence of God unless his sins have been atoned for. And so he's saying, God, I believe on your atoning sacrifice and your Messiah. I believe in Yeshuatcha, your salvation. Yeshuatcha. Yeshuatcha. You see, I believe on Yeshua, your salvation. That's what he's saying. You could just as accurately say, and the, the translation would have been, instead of, Lord, I believe on your salvation, I wait for your salvation, that you could have just said, I believe on your Yeshua, because it's the same exact words. Either way, it's the same words. Whichever way you want to translate it to, both are accurate. There it is, Jacob, who is now called Israel, believing on Yeshua. Yeshuartcha, the salvation of God. And here he's saying he's waiting for God's Messiah, God's atonement for his sins. That's amazing. Amazing how God puts it right there in front of your eyes to all who desire to see it, to all who will see it. There it is, Yeshua, God's, God's Yeshua. Jacob is saying, I waited for your Yeshua, Lord. Wow, just wow. Praise God. Now Jacob continues blessing the other sons. Let's continue on with it. And notice that the next three sons receive a very brief blessing. It says in verse 19, God, you say, God, first you're telling me that Dan is now Don, and now you're telling me that Gad is God. No, 
It's just that that A is pronounced like the A in father. It's an A sound, not an A sound. Just like it was in Dan, it's not Dan, it's Don. In G-A-D, the Hebrew name that you would call Gad, if you'd pronounce it in, he in English, is pronounced God in Hebrew. He says in verse 19, God, a troop shall ramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Now, that's a brief verse. That kid didn't get a lot of blessing. What's going on here? Well, the tribe of God supplied many fine troops for King David. We know that from 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14. A troop shall ramp upon him. Well, what does that mean? In the days of Jeremiah, among other times, foreign armies oppressed God. Jeremiah 49.1. We know that, and when they did, they were always trampling across their land and trying to enslave them and beat them and take what was theirs. So that was his blessing, if you will. I would say that's a warning. <laughs> yeah, that's not a blessing. Well, it's, I guess it'd be a blessing that you know ahead of time what's going to happen. Maybe you could prepare for it a little bit. But really, a troop shall tramp upon him. And that's what happened as we look back in the Tanakh after that, that later, many years later, these things exactly happened exactly as Jacob said they would to his sons. Now, let's see what Jacob says about Asher. Now, you say Asher. You look at that and you go, oh, that's Asher. But it's actually Asher. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about Asher. It's only a short verse, isn't it? What's the word for rich in Hebrew? Asher. Now, he's saying bread from Asher shall be rich. I'll tell you what. I've lived in Israel 12 years, still visit there all the time. You will not find a better tasting piece of bread than the Chibetta bread in Israel. You go out, you get you a breakfast if you want, but don't you, don't you ignore that bread because that bread is made fresh every morning. Forget about preservatives. Yeah, it won't be good three or four days later. Who cares? It tastes so good, you're going to eat it all right there at the table before you get up. And you might think that the bread is just kind of a, oh, it's just a part of the breakfast, but the real part is the, is the eggs and the potatoes and all like this. You'd be wrong. That bread is the best part of it. You go to a Walmart today in the United States, you see this bread aisle that looks bigger than any three stores put together in Israel where you would buy your groceries in a lot of places, you know, and and every one of those pieces of bread, I mean, it's got so much preservatives in there. And they do that so that it will last on the shelf for a long, long time. I remember when bread used to have like a four or five or six day life expectancy. And it'd be stamped on the wrapper. And you'd be able to see when it was good to. Now that bread is good for a month. And what's going on? They put so many preservatives in it and everything. The problem is... Preservatives in, taste goes out. It doesn't taste like anything. You go to Israel, you get a good piece of bread. I don't care if it's for lunch, dinner, what I'm telling you, don't miss out. You get a good piece of bread. It's all made fresh every morning in the good restaurants. Amazing, 
amazing. You forget how good a piece of bread can taste. You might just push the rest of that food aside and go like, you know what? This will be my breakfast today. This is good. And it really is. Now here's what he's saying about Naphtali. Naphtali is a deer let loose. Oh, I got to go back real quick. I mentioned that bread from a share shall be rich because a share was basically a baker. And he does other things, royal dainties, and you know, I'm sure it's like chocolate with a strawberry on it, all these fancy things. But I will say the food in Israel in general is good. You can tell I haven't eaten dinner yet, so. Hmm. But now he goes to Naphtali. Naphtali, he says in verse 21, is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Matthew 4, verse 12 through 16, let's just quote that right now. It says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. By the way, in Hebrew is Kafar Nahum. Kafar is village, Nahum was the name of a person, Kafar Nechem. That's how you say Capernaum in Hebrew. He says, Capernaum, he dwelt, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali, the two of the sons that we're talking about here. It says, he came and dwelt by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, Yeshayahu Hanavi in Hebrew, Isaiah the prophet, saying the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, Sea of Galilee, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light when Yeshua was there, you see. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Why is he talking about that? Because Yeshua went and told them what they had to do to live forever, to believe on the one that God has sent. All that list of things you think you have to do, Yeshua said, all you really need to do is one. Believe on the one whom God has sent, and you will be saved. Now, that talked about Naphtali, and now you know from, from the scriptures what we just described. You know where Zebulun and Naphtali settled in, where their tribes settled in. So we said that Zebulun was from about Haifa over to the Sea of Galilee. And they're real close to the Mediterranean Sea there. And then Naphtali is also in that area, a little further north, but they're also around that region of the Sea of Galilee. And so that's why the prophecy in the book of Isaiah that we just read, that's why it said those things and referred to that land because that's where those two sons of Jacob ended up, that's where their descendants, their tribes ended up once they came into the promised land. And Joshua who led them there, who was God used to lead them there, allocated that land for those two sons of Jacob, those two sons of Israel. Remember, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Now let's look at what he says about Joseph. Oh man, a lot can be said about Joseph, but he starts in verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. <laughs> He's got deep roots into the water. His branches run over the wall. He's growing like crazy. He's producing all this fruit. The archers, it says in verse 23, have bitterly grieved him. He's talking about his brothers. They shot at him. They hated him. But his bow remained in strength. 
Now, what's that talking about? Remember, Joseph was sold into slavery down into Egypt by his brothers who were jealous of him because they felt like his father Jacob loved him more. Okay. And they felt like he was saying that one day they would bow down to him and he would be some mighty guy and they would be just nothing, I guess. They didn't like him. They sold him into slavery down into Egypt. But even then, when God raised him up and put him in charge of the most powerful nation on earth, prime minister, second only behind Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, by name only and the throne only, but all the power was in Joseph. Joseph was a prime minister of Egypt, the most powerful, most modern, advanced nation in the world at that time. It says the archers grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. And that's speaking of his brothers when they sold him into slavery. But look at verse 24. But his bow, but Joseph's bow, the thing that he would have responded with, his bow remained in strength. In other words, he was strong enough and had the willpower not to get revenge on his brothers. He didn't pull his bow and aim it against them. He left it there in strength. Not talking about his arms, not talking about strength of his body, but the strength of his heart. He knew what the Bible had said, that vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You are not to take revenge on people. You're to let God fight your battles. He says his bow remained in strength, a strength of the heart. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. In other words, he might have wanted to hit them when he saw them come down and, and they were in need of food. He could have withheld the food and paid them back for selling him into slavery. He could have, he was strong. He could have done these things, but his hands were made strong because he kept them back from revenge. And the one who enabled his hands to do that and be standing down and to be put in place and not take revenge, the one who enabled that in Joseph was the hand of mighty God of Jacob. And then he says, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. And there you go. Jacob, once again, in prophesying about Joseph, makes this mention of the Messiah. The arms of Joseph's hands were made strong by the hands of mighty God, the mighty God of Jacob, the one who's been faithful to me. And then he makes this little thought just out of nowhere. From there, the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. You know what they said about Jesus in the Tanakh and also in the New Testament. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And he is the good shepherd. Okay, I get it. That's in the Bible. Yes, but this is hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus even walked the earth in human form. And Jacob is now saying these things. And he knows because it's the Spirit of God in him that has revealed these things to his heart. Go on to verse 25. By the God of your Father who will help you. 
and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and blessings of the womb, the blessings of your Father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, the highest point, they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separated or separate from his brothers. He finally gets to see Joseph. Joseph's not dead. Joseph saves the family. God uses Joseph to save the family. All those things that Joseph endured and went through, he could have been bitter with God. He never complained. And then one day he saw what God was doing. He used all of those things that he had suffered through to bring him to a position of power to where he could save not only all of his family, including his brothers who sold him into slavery, but also all of the people of Canaan, all the people in Egypt, perhaps millions of people all around him because God showed him what to do in the famine to save food aside. Then he goes to Benjamin, Benjamin, remember the son of my right, the son of my right hand, Ben is son, Yamin is right. We say Smola to the left, Yamina to the right. Ben, son, Benjamin, son of my right, because Jacob named him that. He was the youngest son, Joseph's younger brother, because he was the second and only other brother of his beloved wife, Rachel, Rachel before she died. In fact, in giving birth to Benjamin, she died. He says in verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the, uh, the spoil. Now, it's interesting when we talk about Benjamin, because even though he's the youngest, he turned out to be one of the most fiercest fighters in all of Israel, the people from his, his descendants, the people from his tribe and descendants turned out to be the fiercest fighters, the fiercest tribe in all of Israel. In fact, one time they did something wrong and it took all of the other tribes of Israel to come against him in battle to try to win, you see. He was fierce and he had his little allocation of land just north of Judah on the north side of Jerusalem. And Judah, of course, had Jerusalem and that area and down south of Jerusalem. But anyone coming against Jerusalem from the northern part of Israel would have to go through Benjamin. And no one wanted to do that. He was fierce. That's what he's called, that ravenous wolf. Now the chapter finishes up with these last verses, beginning at verse 28 and going to the end of the chapter at verse 33. And we'll just read those real quick. It says, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel in verse 28. And this is what their father spoke to them, to each son, you see. And he blessed them and he blessed each one according to his own blessing. Verse 29, then he charged them and said to them, now he's switching the subjects. He says to them, I am to be gathered to my people. You know, I'm going to die. I'm to be gathered to my people. This is what happened to my father and my grandfather, and now I'm going to be with them. I'll be gathered to my people by the Lord. And bury me, he says, with my fathers in the cave. Remember the cave that Genesis told us about? Abraham bought, and Isaac and the rest of them were there, buried there. And actually, Jacob had buried Leah there. He says, I am to be gathered to my people, in verse 29, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. 
That's the one that Abraham bought it from. They're in the land, and that's the land that we have a deed to. Abraham had a deed to there in the land of Canaan. Verse 30 says, In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. He bought it for Sarah when Sarah died, Abraham's wife, Sarah. In verse 31 there, they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there, Jacob says, I buried Leah, one of my two wives. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Het. You would say Heth in English. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Better be careful of how you bring your feet up into that bed, folks. <laughs> but God was finished with him. Jacob knew this. He was in touch with God. He was sensitive to the Holy Spirit. He knew that that would be it. It was his time. He drew his feet up into the bed. His spirit returned to God. And now his sons know where to take him to bury him. Now that's the end of chapter 49. And there's only 50 chapters in this book. So next week we finish the book of Genesis. You're going through the Torah. You're learning Torah right now. And you're learning the truth of God's Word. You've come all this way through Genesis in your Torah study. You've been with me now for a long time going through Genesis. You don't want to miss next week. Don't you dare miss it. It's going to surprise you. We're going to finish the Torah book of Genesis next week. And you need that to tie it all together. Amen. So why don't you give your life to this faithful, loving, kind, and wonderful God that we're talking about? You give your life to Him today. Why not? Right now. If you call out to Him, He'll hear that cry. He'll answer you. He'll rescue you from that darkness that you're in. He'll shine His light on your heart. You'll be given a new life. He'll change you into a new person. Throw all those past failures away and you'll be made completely new, given a new start. And He'll give you everlasting life in heaven and that's guaranteed by God Himself. We want to give you an opportunity to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Lord and to receive God's peace in your life. You can be saved, given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from that judgment like we talked about today. Just pray something like this, and if you'd like, you can just repeat it after me, but mean it in your heart to God. Just say, God, I do want to know You, and I do want to have this real peace in my life. I believe on Your Son, Jesus Christ as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to You. Thank You, Lord. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, I'll tell you something. God heard you, and He's already started working in your life. Even now, a little seed's been planted deep down in your heart. You don't see it really at first. You don't see any change because down below the surface of the ground, it's putting out roots, growing, drawing up the moisture, drawing the minerals from the soil. But over time, you're going to begin to see it break out of that ground, and people are going to be noticing that you're a different person. 
you're going to see the wonderful things that God is doing in your life. Get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about the Lord every day in His Word. Talk to Him every day in prayer. He's going to do beautiful things in your life.